Today, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We're called by God to uh, value life from conception to natural death. And that's uh, celebrated, remembered this weekend. We also uh, have another national holiday this weekend, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, a flawed man to be sure like all of us, but a man who proclaimed with courage things that ring true to Scripture. And, and he was a, a prophetic voice of sorts into our flawed culture, uh, speaking about the value of life regardless of background or ethnicity or skin color. And here at Grace, we heartily affirm that, that we need to and want to speak out in support of life, regardless of the background. So we declare today loudly that all life has inherent value, regardless of background, regardless of age, regardless of vulnerability. And in our passage today, we're going to see that issue of vulnerability come out. We're in our second week of our study in the first half of Exodus with God on our side. Last week, we saw that to oppose God and his chosen plans is an exercise in futility, that God's not going to be thwarted. And today in chapter 2 of Exodus, uh, we're going to see that even in the worst of circumstances, God is moving towards his goal, toward his purpose. What others mean for evil, God uses for good. Turn there if you would, Exodus chapter 2. I hope you brought a Bible and uh, can follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible and would like one, just lift up your hands. Our hosts have Bibles there. A gift to you if you don't own one. Uh, we want you to read God's Word on loan to you. If you do and you just forgot it at home, just turn that in on your way out. Exodus chapter 2, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, second chapter. And we begin there. First point in our outline, that God protects Moses, his chosen servant. God protects Moses, his chosen servant. You can follow along in our worship program or online, gracepolaris.org program, this particular chapter. You know, context demands here that we read the last verse of chapter 1 in order to find out what's happening. Here we read there, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, all the Egyptians, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the entire Hebrew community, the entire population, was warned that there was going to be state-sanctioned population control of the Hebrews, that the male population was going to be culled, and the threat of the Hebrews was going to be reduced. And the way to do this was male infanticide. They're going to drown the baby boys. So imagine being a family. Imagine being a couple. Imagine being a woman of childbearing age in this scenario where you knew that you had a 50% chance of having to hide your baby. And if you did, the chances were great that eventually he would be confiscated and drowned. So the old announcement, I'm pregnant, is put in a new category, isn't it? Imagine the emotions. Imagine going through months of carrying a child in your womb, knowing that he would likely be killed. Imagine going through hours, or for some women, days of labor, knowing that your baby just might be drowned. Verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when he 
when she could hide him no longer, she got a uh, papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Normally, the news of a birth, a birth of a son in some cultures, brings great joy. But for these two parents, Jochebed and Amram, we learn their names in Exodus 6, it struck terror. Pharaoh had decreed that all baby boys were going to be killed, of the Israelites, that is. And sure enough, their baby was born, and it was a boy. So you can imagine this fleeting excitement for a moment, and then, oh no, what do we do? How do we keep this boy alive? How do we save Junior? Making things all the more difficult, as the text tells us here, they noticed that he was a fine child. Some translations say a beautiful child. He had some kind of extraordinary physical appearance and appeal. This wasn't a run-of-the-mill boy. This was a standout. And so they kicked into action. The text tells us some things rather matter-of-factly. They hid the boy for three months. Early on, for many children, not all, it's easier to hide them because of their need for sleep, the size of their lungs, and so forth. And they thought if we hid him along the banks of the Nile, where people could... Uh, take notice, Hebrews that is, where when the Egyptian police weren't around, they could see where he is, where he could be hidden among the reeds. Maybe, maybe he could be saved. But time's ticking. And after a couple of months, of course, that strategy is no longer effective. So, so they had to place him there and hope. Uh, the Bible tells us here that it was a little basket made of reeds. We might call it a wicker basket in our day and age. Uh, it, it was coated so that it could be sealed. And interestingly, the Bible uses the same word for this as it does for Noah's ark. This is called an ark, big ark, little ark. And both of them were used by God to pursue his plan. They were both instruments of rescue. Moses is there in Little Ark along the Nile or in one of the tributaries or inlets so that he could be hidden, undisturbed, preserved. And that's not all that uncommon in parts of our world and in parts of history. The masses of people who live along a body of water, particularly a river, um, it's not unheard of that for women or families who can't care for this child but desperately want it to live, would place it there and somebody might come by. You know, a, a woman washing clothes, someone there to prepare food. That this kind of exposure might allow the baby to live. This would be semi-equivalent in our day and age to going to a hospital or an orphanage and, and leaving a baby on the steps hoping that someone could help. That was Moses' family, hoping for rescue, acting in faith. One of my mentors, Tom Julian, and we'll hear from him several times today, said this, faith in the biblical sense means more than simply believing something intellectually. It means acting on the basis of our believing. So the family of Moses believed and acted upon it. They constructed an ark. They put their child there in the river. And in particular, we see their anticipation of this rescue in the eyes of Big Sister. Her heart had to have been 
ripped out as she gazed at baby brother in the basket. At any moment, all kinds of terrible things could happen to this little boy. And she was transfixed. She was concerned. I have an oldest daughter. I have other children, two sons. Remember the time over 10 years ago when we were in a major auto accident and one of the concerns, perhaps above all, for big sister Hannah was, how's Joshua? Is he going to be all right? Is he going to make it? Even more so, perhaps, this whole family was transfixed by the destiny of Moses. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. The story picks up. All kinds of terrible things could happen, but also wonderful things could happen. And one of them does. If you notice here, there are three women that play a very prominent role in this story. One is a mother, another is a daughter, and a third is a daughter who becomes a mother. Pharaoh's daughter, likely young, likely very pretty, comes down to take a, a, a ritually significant bath in the Nile. Her attendants are walking with her. We have no reason to think that she isn't a direct offspring of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But like many uh, members of royalty, this king uh, probably had multiple wives or legal or sexual partners. So it's likely that the king had many offspring, handfuls, maybe dozens. And that may have helped this particular daughter escape the ever-present watchful eye of the pharaoh. Here's what we learned. She saw the basket, she opened it, saw the baby, heard the cry. See all the senses going on here? And her response, similar to virtually every other woman who's walked the earth, was quite predictable. She felt sorry for it. This is a word of emotion. Her heart was moved. Some of your translations say pity or compassion. She sees a vulnerable person, a baby, and she's moved with concern. She's moved to protect. I think it's more than coincidental that we're looking at this passage on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a day where we remember and mobilize people to value life. Life from conception to natural death. But, but the beginning, the, the fuel of this day, this remembrance, is the sobering reality that in many societies, including our own, it is legally allowable to kill unborn children for a whole variety of reasons. A million annually in our country, millions more elsewhere. And, and we, as people who understand how God values life, feel compelled to shine the light on that on that injustice and to minimize it. And someday we pray, we hope, we work to make it illegal and even more important, to make it unthinkable. One of the most effective ways of doing that is using medical technology. Many evangelical Christians have heard time and again that somehow we're anti-science. Well, those who say that ought to familiarize themselves with sonograms and ultrasounds. Perhaps more than anything else, these tools 
help pregnant women, help families understand what's going on in the womb just by seeing it. The movement. We saw that on the video earlier. And seeing that speaks not just to our minds, but to our hearts and to our consciences. God's made us whole people. And God compels us. He convicts us by appealing to the ingrained humanity in all of us. That happened here with Pharaoh's daughter. She saw the baby. She was moved with compassion. And whatever her father had told her, whatever society had instructed her, she, she allowed those commands to be superseded by what she knew was true. Text tells us here that her maternal instincts overrode the commands of her father. She saw that it was a Hebrew baby. Maybe it was the features, the complexion, the clothing. Certainly, if the baby would have been unwrapped, and probably was, she would have seen the distinguishing feature of a Hebrew boy. He was circumcised. That was his badge of honor. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she, the daughter, answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Big sister Miriam is there. Uh, most scholars think that she was elementary school age, somewhere between 6 and 12, probably a little on the upper side there. She would have been watching the basket. She was still a girl, so not too much suspicion about why she was fascinated by something there. And almost immediately, when she recognized that the Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket, saw the boy in there, she was there with a proposal. Hey, Let's have one of the Hebrew women nurse, breastfeed this little boy. Logical, sensible, shrewd. You could even say it was a bit self-seeking, meaning she was looking out for her brother. She was looking out for her family, for her people, and that was precisely what God wanted here. What I find especially remarkable is that the Pharaoh's daughter offered to pay her or her family to take this child. Pharaoh's daughter saw something special in him, something unique in this little Hebrew boy. So she invested in him quite literally. She paid the family. She had the future in mind. And as it turned out, she got the boy back later. He became her son legally and in training. Her involvement, her rescue was prominent for years to come. Moses would grow up in all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all of the worldview of the Egyptians. Remember that as we move forward today and in Exodus. First part of the story here. Let's make a few observations before we move on. Number one, Moses' earliest years were spent with a God-fearing family. Whatever happens later in life, Never forget the impact of those first formative years. Parents today, mothers especially, what you show, what you do, what you teach with your little children is profoundly important. Even, even non-Christians recognize the influence of those early years. What you do really matters. 
Second, what at the time seems terrible is often crucially important in the big picture. What, what might seem terrible is crucially important. Moses spends his time in Egyptian culture, hard for him, probably hard for his family, but strategic for God. Because Moses, to be used by God later, would need to understand the world of the Israelites and of the Egyptians. And he would be a bridge person. Third, understanding our culture is important for our witness. As God's people, we can't live with our heads in the sand, nor should we try. Moses here is exposed to the Egyptian education and training, probably literature and certain kinds of arts, maybe military leadership. Moses would have learned some foreign languages during that time. And God would use all of that later. We shouldn't fear exposure. We need discerning minds to understand it. Four, God often uses our opposition to make us stronger. Often uses our opposition to make us stronger to represent him better. See, he, he, God, is going to use the peril that Moses is in to actually undermine the Egyptians. What they think they're doing will actually undermine them later. This is what some refer to as spoiling the Egyptians. They're fueling their opposition. It's great. Five, God is at work when he seems absent, especially when he seems absent. Don't miss the irony here. The ones who are seeking to destroy God's people are actually preparing God's deliverer. How cool is that? Tom Julian says this passage is full of happenstances and coincidences, which really aren't those things at all. God's hand is at work the entire time he's involved in all the details. Amen. Finally, number six, what happens in the Old Testament frequently points to, teases, forecasts what's going to happen in the new. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. Here, today, Exodus 2, we see this vulnerable baby that God intervenes for. That baby would be God's deliverer. Later, the ultimate deliverer would be Jesus. What's happening in the microcosm of the story has implications for the cosmic plan of God. And that's true in your life too. Do you believe that? Let's look at verses 11 and following. Second point in your outline, God protects Moses even as he isolates him. Even as he isolates Moses, God is protecting him. And in the first section there, you see in your outline, God removes Moses after he makes his momentous choice. We'll see something about that momentous choice here momentarily. A little background. Between verses 10 and 11, likely about 40 years pass. Moses is educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians during this time. And I have to believe, again and again, Moses was thinking during this time, who am I? Who do I belong to? What are my values? Who do I align myself with? Who's got my allegiance? Because sooner or later, Moses must have thought, I'm going to have to make a decision. Whose team am I on here? Is it the Egyptians? 
Or is it my people? And that moment eventually arrived. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. In fact, twice here, Moses refers to his own people. He sees their hard labor. He distinguishes between Egyptians and Hebrews. He, he had heard about the terrible conditions of the Hebrews, and now he saw it with his own eyes. And he was filled with compassion. And he made a decision, or his decision was confirmed in his heart that he would identify with the Hebrews, with the Israelites. And he's commended for it. If we go all the way to the other side of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11 and the Hall of Faith chapter, Moses has a prominent section. Just listen along. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, Refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater, greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses didn't know all that was coming, but he trusted God that God did. And in that way, his trust pointed to Christ. Moses demonstrates faith here. He aligns himself with his own people. He aligns himself with God rather than with his own pleasure. Can you say that? In your own life, in your own leisure, in your own finances, in your own sexuality, in your own relationships, are you aligning yourself with God or your own pleasure? Can you say as that old song goes, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Moses, long before Jesus could say that he was committed to God, he had made a conscious, defining choice. Here's what one Old Testament scholar says, well, Moses might easily have so enjoyed the prerequisites of power and wealth that were his as an Egyptian princeling that he would have proudly identified himself throughout his life as an Egyptian. But no, he eschewed, he set aside, he gave up all the privileges of Egyptian rank and sided with an oppressed people. He thus guaranteed himself mistreatment along with them. Wow, Moses, good job. Unfortunately, even the right conclusion doesn't always end up with the right judgment. Moses didn't understand that aligning with God's plan also means trusting in his timing. Let me say that again. Aligning with God's plan also means trusting in his timing. Moses took matters into his own hands, literally. He substituted his own zeal for God's power and God's timing. Verse 12, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he, Moses, killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. There's no way to sugarcoat this. Moses murdered another human being. This was wrong. It's possible to believe the right things with the right motives while doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. 
we've all heard it a hundred, a thousand times. The ends don't justify the means. God can certainly use sinful choices. The whole Bible shows us that, but that doesn't mean he approves of them. John Davis, a former Old Testament professor, president of Grace College and Seminary, said, while his deed cannot be condoned, it certainly expressed his, Moses' deep love for the people of God and was in effect an outward expression of his righteous indignation for the plight of those people. It also indicated a complete rejection of the pleasures which Egypt had to offer. Moses' right allegiance. Moses' right motives. But wrong response. And those choices have consequences. Moses would find out very quickly. Verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, hey, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, verse 15, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. Moses had inner conviction, good. He had courage, good. But, but then Moses acts in a way that's understandable to us, but is foolish nonetheless. And that seems to undermine all that God had destined for him. Moses burned bridges here. He, he burned bridges, it seems, with his future. He burned bridges with the Egyptians. He burned bridges with his own Hebrew people. Moses becomes rash in solving the situation when he should have trusted God's means and God's timing. Again, Tom Julian writes, on the one hand, there was nothing wrong at all with the faith of Moses when he decided to commit his life to God. This faith is commended in the New Testament. We saw that. Moses' error was that this faith did not extend to the methods he chose to deliver his people. He was not willing to wait on God. The great Moses felt he was sufficient in himself to do God's work. See the dilemma here? Moses identifies with his people. That's commendable. Moses was incensed by injustice. That, that was praiseworthy. Moses believed that God could use him to do right. That was courageous. But Moses thought he knew when and how that should be done, and that was not right. Every one of us can fall into this trap. Right judgment, right motives, therefore what I do must be right. Maybe not. Sometimes the best attempts to help actually cause harm. And that's true here. Moses thought that those who were observing his act, namely the Hebrews, would understand that God had given salvation through his hands. But alas, they didn't. Again, in the New Testament, we see a summary, an interpretation of this story. Listen along. Acts chapter 7. Stephen, before he's martyred, gives Old Testament history and spends a lot of time on Moses. Here's what we read in verse 20, Acts 7. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, here's our story, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. 
He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Same story, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. He meant well, but he acted wrongly. And there were consequences. People found out. People confronted him. The Pharaoh found out, wanted revenge. Moses had to hightail it out of there, out of the country. Wearsby says so well, so personally, these two incidents reveal Moses as a compassionate man who was sincere in his motives. That's all good. But impetuous, rash, impulsive in his actions. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. Imagine what you would have felt or what you would have thought, what you would have feared. Can, can you relate to Moses here? Have you ever been in a situation in which you were trying to do the right thing, but you felt like your world was collapsing in on you? In fact, if you were honest, you felt like God had abandoned you in the middle of all this. Maybe you're in that situation right now. We learn from the Bible, God does not waste those experiences and God has not abandoned you. In fact, he's using those experiences for your good. It's true for Moses too. Follow along there. Verse 15 and following, God provides for Moses during his time in exile. Moses is sent packing. He went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. If you look at verse 15, a lot happens there. Moses goes from you know, protecting his people to being accused of problems. Pharaoh hears about this. Moses says, what in the world? Moses has to get out of Dodge. He ends up in another country, another region, sitting down by a well. Well, that was a great experience, wasn't it? What a turn of events. Historians, archaeologists tell us that the region of the Midianites was uh, south of the Dead Sea. You look on a map here, follow the red line from left to right, and you see Midian there um, between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea or over even further to the east. Uh, some of you have been there. Letitia and I had the privilege of being in uh, Israel in that part of the world, uh, in Jordan as well, two years ago. And I want you to look at some, some pictures of the landscape. There's Moses' invitation. So that's in, uh, in that same region here. Not exactly inviting. Here, here's a town that developed uh, here 3,500 years later in our time in Jordan. That looks a little better. I think I'd prefer that one to what we saw before. That's the northernmost of the Red Sea. Here's Petra in, in modern-day Jordan, some remains. But let's go back to that first picture there. This is where Moses is heading. Any volunteers? Just a note, uh, I'm working with Pastor Bob Federhoff from a sister church about a trip in spring 2022 to that part of the world. So if you're interested, uh, we'll see uh, if uh, the Lord has that and COVID cooperates. But let me know um, 
you might be a part of that. For our purposes here, we see that Midian was not a particularly inviting place to go. Moses wasn't invited to go to a luxury spa. That was barren wilderness. You may have heard the name Midianites before. Um, When Sarah died, Abraham's first wife, he remarried a woman named Keturah, and she had children with Abraham. One of those children was named Midian, and his descendants then settled in that land. In fact, the Midianites were involved in Joseph's life. Remember Joseph thrown into a well? Midians come by, they get him, and they take him as a slave onto Egypt. So the Midianites are really involved in God's people and with the Egyptians in that country. Let's follow the story. Verse 16, now priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water, fill the troughs with their, of water, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along, drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, well, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked the daughters. Why'd you leave him? Those kind of men don't come along all the time. Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with a man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershom, saying, I become a foreigner in a foreign land. Fascinating story. Let's make some caveats here. This isn't meant to be a primer on how to find a wife. No well, no grocery store, no bar, no online app is God's prescribed way to find a life. A wife, excuse me. If God wants you to get married, he'll find a way and you'll have a great story to tell about it. This also isn't a prescription that if you show kindness, you'll get married. It's just simply no guarantee. This is not a story about the miseries of marriage. Moses may have been resigned or depressed there in verse 22, but it's not because of his marriage. It's because he feels abandoned. He feels isolated by God. Here's the point of that section. God is preparing and refining Moses to be the leader of his people, the kind that God needed. And Moses had some things to learn. Moses was big man on campus in Egypt. Moses was impressive. Moses had authority and power and influence. And God needed to take him away, take him to the desert to show him who's who. That that Moses needed God and to prepare Moses on how to lead God's people in a new land. Most of what Moses needed to learn was was spiritual in nature during this time. How to lead God's people in the desert. Basic training. We all need to learn those lessons, whether we're a leader or not, whether we're in the spotlight or not, whether we understand God's plan for us or not. A number of things we need to learn. Here are several. We, we can virtually never understand our own miseries and emergencies at the time we're experiencing them, that they might end up leading to blessing. See, we got to admit, we don't see fully. And so when we get exasperated with God, we need to say, you know what, but I don't have the big picture you do. Second thing, God's grace is such that he can even make use of our acts of folly to bring his plan to perfection. The desert years were part of God's will for his servant. Oh, it's great news. 
You can drive your life off a cliff and run it into the ground. And God can even use that for your good and for his glory. Third, patience for God's people is a virtue. Patience isn't resignation. It's not apathy. Patience is this settled expectation that God knows what he's doing and he'll do it in due time. These are great lessons for Moses about life, about God, about a future deliverer, but they're not easy ones. They're not even easy for us, and we live 2,000 years after the culmination of God's plan in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We still struggle to understand that God knows what he's doing. When you feel abandoned, my God, when you feel parked on the side of the road, realize this, God is still at work and God still sees you in your valley. You believe that? Let's close by looking at the last couple verses where we see that God remembers his chosen people even as they suffer. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. They were past the point of wanting to give up. They didn't realize God was just getting started. Moses feels their agony here. It's like he hears the groaning. He, he, he tasted their afflictions, their desperation. But even more hopeful is that God is aware. God saw their plight. God is not uninterested. God is not uninvolved. We see that at the end of this dark chapter, God heard their groaning. He was receptive to their agony and yours. God remembered his covenant. He had made promises to the Hebrews and he was going to carry them out. He's made promises in the new covenant through Jesus Christ to you and me and God will carry them out. It says here, God looked and was concerned. God knows, God cares, God sympathizes. God is a God of compassion. That's why we can read in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The same God who worked through Moses, who worked in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, continues to work in your life and in mine. Those of us who trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, God has us in mind. God sees us and God is at work. And he's leading us to eventual victory. Listen closely. Even when things look dark in our world, in our time, in our country, in your life, God knows exactly what he's doing. He's in control. The question is, do you and I believe that? Do we really believe that? That everything that is happening in our world is moving toward God's goal and fulfilling his purposes. His purposes in our lives and leading to his return. So when we fixate on changing our circumstances in our lives, in our culture, what does that actually say about our trust in God? 
let me say this real bluntly. Nobody is stealing your life or stealing your future or stealing your country or stealing your destiny. God is fully in control, fully. When everything seems to be falling apart, God's moving towards his goal. And that means we can trust in his providence. We've seen that. So many of your lives are a testimony of God's provision for you. We've seen that here at Grace, in our ministries, in our initiatives, in our planning, in our Reaching Beyond campaign, in the sequencing of our buildings. God knows what he's doing and his plan's better. And you and I can rest in that. We can have peace in the midst of that, even if it doesn't make sense to us. And when we reject that, we should be forewarned that apart from God's plan and timing, when we try to make it happen, it's bound to fail. It's bound to bring frustration. It's bound to be foolish. Friends, God's going to see his promises through. He shows that in Exodus 1, Exodus 2. He shows that through Moses, in spite of Moses. He shows that in the greatest deliverer to ever come, not Moses, but Jesus Christ, the, the culmination of the ages. And God is faithful, not just to Moses or through Jesus, but he's faithful to us. And we need to remember that even now. God asks for our trust. He doesn't want us to presume. He doesn't want us to despair. The story of this chapter is that human excellence is never sufficient to do the work of God. It is the plan and the power of God that is enough. And the question for us is, do we believe that and live accordingly? Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are in control and we're grateful that you see the big picture and we're grateful that you know what we need in the process. If you were honest and you are, you have to look at us so many times and say, oh, ye of little faith. But since you've given us your spirit, God, it's possible for us to have faith, to increase faith in you. Thank you that you know what you're doing. And in the details of our lives, in the plight of our times, in the chaos of our culture and world, help us to be a people who realize that even when things seem to be falling apart, you're spot on moving toward your goal. And we can trust you. May we be those people. In Jesus' name, amen.